Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. On this Easter Sunday, Pastor Steve is teaching on the Great Banquet. Every person is given an invitation to come to the table with Jesus both now and forever, but not all respond to the invitation the same way. Thanks for joining us. Well, you can probably tell from the paintings that were done by somebody in our church family and the way that the stage is set up that this weekend we've kind of had a theme built around Good Friday and Easter around this idea of a table. And the reason for that is that tables are pretty significant places for us as human beings and they're also significant in Scripture. In fact, I was thinking about different tables that we might encounter in every, any given year and the different feelings they might bring up for us. And so I'm going to start this morning by showing you some pictures of some tables. And I just want you to notice what feelings these bring into your, uh, into your heart. So here's the first one. This is kind of just an everyday kitchen table, perhaps not unlike the one where your family gathers together to eat dinner at, at night or something like that. I don't know, what kind of feelings does that bring for you? Here's another example of a table. This is a much more fancy table. It's a Thanksgiving table, and I bet many of you are going to be heading to somebody's home a little bit after this service where you're going to gather around a nice fancy table. And for some of you, that brings positive connotations because you get to be with some extended family and friends. For others of you, you're going, oh, i got to spend another day with Uncle Bob. (laughs) Here's the third table. This is one of my favorite tables. This is a coffee shop table. Nothing better than a good strong cup of coffee, maybe a book, or maybe a friend to share that cup of coffee with. Here's a, another table. Oh, I don't know how that got in there, sorry, let's, uh, <laughs> let's move on. Here's one more table. Some of you are right in the midst of probably a season where you're seeing a lot of this table right now, and I don't know what feelings that brings. And then here's one last table, a table that brings fear to our very souls, doesn't it? <laughs> Is there anything more scary than grabbing your tray of food in the cafeteria, turning, and then seeing this? Where are my friends? Where are people I know that I could sit with? And again, the reason I wanted to share these tables with us is that they all probably mean something different for us. Some of them have positive connotations, some of them negative, but they all have something in common. All tables are places where human beings gather to experience relationship. That's really the point of tables, for humans to gather together. Now, interestingly, the Bible talks a lot about tables as well. I thought about this table from Genesis 22. When they had reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar or a table there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I can't even imagine that kind of table. Then I think about this table in 1 Samuel 25. When Abigail went to Nabal, he was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. Little did Nabal know just that night he would die at that very table where he was holding that banquet. I think about the table where Levi, the tax collector, was sitting when one day Jesus approached his table and said, leave everything and come and follow me. And Levi got up from the table. He actually went home and set another table at his house so that his friends could come and gather around that table and meet this Jesus who had just changed his life. Of course, the most important table that we remember together is the one we celebrated here on Friday night, the one that is depicted here in this beautiful picture. It is the communion table, which we know on the night he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his closest friends his followers around a table, and he broke bread, 
saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink this, remember me. And we had a chance to celebrate that together on Friday night in a very powerful service. Now, one of the things, interestingly, we don't talk a whole lot about when we remember communion is that as Jesus was instituting communion, he actually alludes to another table. It's right there in Luke 22. Right in the middle of them taking communion, Jesus says, and taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, what's going on here? Well, obviously, first of all, Jesus is talking about that very night he was going to die. So he wouldn't share a meal with them again until there's this allusion to another table. There is another table one day where we are going to gather around with Jesus and share a meal with him. Now, what table is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about what the Bible calls the great messianic banquet table, which is referring to when Christ will return in all of his power, in all of his authority, and establish his kingdom forever, represented in this incredible picture over here. And so here's what's so cool about the time we live in right now. Literally, we live in between these two tables. We live in the time between these two tables. When we celebrate communion together, we remember this table, the table where Jesus gave his life for it, but we also are looking forward to this other table when Jesus will come again and he will remove all sin and shame and fear and suffering. This banquet table was prophesied 700 years before Jesus was even born. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 25, 6. He says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meals, and the finest of wines. It's talked about in the very last book of the Bible as well, in Revelation. Jesus is preparing a table for his people. And here's what I want us to understand this Easter. If you're on your notes here, Easter is all about God's invitation to join him at his table. This is going to be the party to end all parties, and Jesus wants you to be there. And so my question for us this Easter is, will you be? Will you be at the table, the great wedding banquet table of the Lamb? Maybe you're unsure. Maybe you don't know how to respond to that invitation. Well, thankfully, Jesus tells us how to in a parable he gives in the book of Matthew, chapter 22. And that's what I want to look at with you together this morning. So if you brought a Bible with you, I encourage you to take that and go to Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 1. If you're still getting used to where things are in your Bible, Matthew is about four-fifths of the way back, the very first book of the New Testament. If you don't have your own Bible today, we have some in the seats underneath you there. They're the black books there. You can grab one of those, I hope, and follow along. And you can find this on page 803 in those black Bibles. And in fact, I just say, we say this often, if you don't own your own Bible, we'd love for you to take that home as your gift, as our gift to you. So here's what we're going to do. We'll work our way through this parable, and then we'll come back at the end and see how it still applies to us today. But before we do that, could we bow our heads once again and pray? Oh Lord, we would ask that you would speak to us now. Not my words, but your word. You're in the business of inviting us into relationship. So make that abundantly clear. May we hear the invitation with ears to hear. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Matthew 22, verse 1 starts like this. It says, Jesus spoke to them again in parables. Now, parables are simply stories that Jesus would tell that had a point. And we get the point right away in verse 2. Would you read it out loud with me on your notes there? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. So it doesn't take a detective to figure out what Jesus is talking about here. Right away, if you're on your notes, we know this parable is about Christ returning to take his bride. This parable is about Christ returning to take his bride, which is just one of the ways that the church is referred to in Scripture as the bride of Christ. And so listen, right now we know what he's talking about. He's talking about the wedding feast of the Lamb. He's talking about the great banquet that awaits us upon his return. So we keep reading in verse 3. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. Now stop there. First, I just want to say how strange those words must have sounded to the people in this day. Maybe they still sound strange to you. Nobody in this time thought of the kingdom of God like a party that they would be invited to. But that's how Jesus describes it here. And if you're following on your notes, all they have to do is receive the invitation and come. Incredible. The kingdom of God is like a party, and all you have to do is receive the invitation and come. God has extended his invitation. And so before we read what happens next, we can, we can imagine, right? Everybody drops what they're doing. They can't believe their good fortune. They've been invited to the party of a century. They're texting their neighbors, see you at the banquet. Of course, that is not what happens. On the contrary, as we're about to see, everybody responds to this invitation quite differently. In fact, we're going to see four responses to the invitation in this parable. And as we go through these together, I want to give you one example of these responses that we can see in Scripture itself. And then I want to come back at the end of today and talk about how these are still the same four responses people give to the invitation. So let's look at the first response found at the end of verse 3 there. It simply says they refuse to come. At first, the king doesn't let this deter him, so he graciously repeats his invitation by describing just how incredible this feast is going to be. Look at verse 4. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. You all like barbecue? I mean, listen, meat in this day would have been a very, very rare commodity. They didn't have a whole lot of meat. And so what we're talking about here is an incredible feast, an incredible opportunity. But look at verse 5. They paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. In Luke's version of this parable, we get a little more detail. Luke says, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. Friends, each one of those excuses is petty. So what if a man just bought a field? He could see it tomorrow. So what if you just bought five yoke of oxen? They could wait. Even the man who just got married really has no excuse because his bride would have been invited as well. If you're following on your notes, this group, group one, represents those who ignore the invitation or make excuses. They know they've been invited, and yet they ignore it. 
or they make excuses. They have something better. As you can imagine, this is hugely disrespectful to the king whose invitation is both an honor and a command. I mean, it's their king after all. Besides, the marriage of a son of a king would have been an amazing celebration, a time of great joy. As I think about this response in light of Scripture, remember I said I wanted to give you one example? I think about an encounter Jesus had with a rich young ruler one day who really came to Jesus, understanding the invitation, saying, what must I do to have a place at your table? Jesus, knowing that his heart was divided between the kingdom of God and wealth, said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He doesn't say that to everybody, but he said it to this young man. And the young man grew sad, Scripture says. And he walked away. He made excuses. He ignored the invitation. That's response number one. The second response we see there in verse six. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. This is going beyond just ignoring the invitation or making excuses. If you're on your notes here, this group are those who oppose the king and his invitation. They're actively against the king and his kingdom, so they seize, manhandle, and kill this man's servants. Of course, if you've read through the New Testament, and even if you haven't, if you know anything about Jesus' story, you know that there were many who outright opposed him and his message. In fact, what blows me away is the very people who should have recognized who Jesus was the most are the ones who opposed him the most. They were the religious leaders of that day, often referred to in Scripture as the Pharisees. There are many examples of their opposition in Scripture. I mean, I could give you any number of them, but the one I want to give you is the one that blows me most away. It's when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story in John 11? The crowd is flocking to him from all the different towns and cities, as you can imagine. I mean, if you heard of somebody raising somebody from the dead, you'd want to go see him too. But the Pharisees don't like it. So they... We read this in John eleven fifty three. 53. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So jealous were they of Jesus' ministry and mission that they began to oppose him and find a way to kill him. And of course, you know the rest of the story. It's what we gathered here to remember on Friday night. They did find a way to take his life. And they would kill many of his servants or disciples as well. In response to this, we read in verse 7, the king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Most scholars believe this is a reference to what happened to Jerusalem about 40 years after Jesus died and rose again. Verse 8 picks up the story, shows us a third response to Jesus' invitation. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. Now read verse 10 on your notes out loud with me. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. I love this. After having his invitation ignored and opposed, the king decides to open it up to those who are on the street corners. Basically, anybody who would come. His invitation goes out into all the world for anyone who would come. And so group three, if you're on your notes there, are simply those who receive the invitation as a gracious gift. Anyone who receives the invitation as a gracious gift, as Matthew notes, I love this, the good and the bad 
are both invited. What is he talking about here? Well, if you've read the Gospels, you get a glimpse of this, that many times in Jesus' ministry, it's the good people or the reputable people who can't understand why Jesus spends so much of his time with the disreputable people, the sinners and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And yet we read again and again and again, it's those people who most likely respond to the invitation because they realize what an incredible gift it really is. I think of this example from Luke 7, and I want to read the whole text with you. I just think it shows us the heart of this invitation and the responses. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is an example of someone who understands that the invitation is a gift of grace that must simply be received. It was undeserved. Simon, though, he couldn't understand that. He didn't like it. Why? Because he represents a fourth kind of people that we see in the end of this parable, which has often been confusing to people, but I don't think it needs to be. Look at verse 11. When the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man was there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Wow, what's going on here? Well, to understand this, you've got to understand a little bit about the culture of that time. You see, often when a king or a lord would throw a banquet of this sort during this time, not only would they provide the food for the banquet, but they would also provide the clothing. That way, if a poor person was invited, they wouldn't have to be ashamed of what they were wearing. And if a rich person were invited, they wouldn't be boastful about their nice dinner jackets and gowns that they'd be coming in. In other words, everybody would come to the banquet on equal ground. Everybody would come wearing the same clothes. Therefore, according to this parable, though, one man pushed his way into the banquet without the proper clothes. No doubt he thought his clothes were good enough. 
He didn't need to wear what the king provided for him, but the king in the banquet throws this man out. What does this mean? I think it represents a fourth kind of people, a fourth kind of response to Jesus' invitation, if you're on your notes. Those who think they deserve it based on their righteousness. A a kind of person like Simon we just read about who thinks they deserve a seat at the kingdom of God based on their own righteousness. I'll give you another example besides Simon. I think about a man named Saul. If you want to talk about a guy who was righteous, it was Saul. Look at what he writes about himself in Philippians 3. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, if you think you're pretty good, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law. What does he say there, friends? Faultless. Faultless. And yet, as we see in this parable, even all of that is not good enough for the king. It is as Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 64, 6. All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Saul was a man who clothed himself with good works, and yet in God's sight, they are but filthy rags. They are not what is needed to get into the banquet. And so that's the parable of the great banquet. And four responses to the invitation. And more than anything else, remember I told you a parable simply has one point. Here is the main point of this parable. Don't miss it this Easter if you're on your notes. God's desire is to be in intimate relationship with us. God's desire is to be an intimate relationship with us. God is not content with just being somebody that you've heard about or you know a little bit about or we talk about from a distance, he wants you and me to join him at his table in relationship both now and forever. And he doesn't want anybody to miss it. So as we close this morning, let's talk once again about those four responses we've seen to this invitation. I want them to represent by these four chairs we have sitting here, and I'm gonna ask you very challengingly, which chair are you sitting in this morning? Which chair are you sitting in this morning? Now, among these chairs, I'd have to say that this first one here probably speaks most to the condition of those of us in America. You see, study after study shows us that people in America, they really still do believe in God. They like the idea of God. I like the idea that God even invites us to his table, and yet, when the invitation actually comes, and Jesus says, come and follow me. Come and make me the king of your life. Come and give your life fully to me. The excuses start flowing. Well, maybe someday I'll do that. I understand that's important. I mean, it's a part of my life, but I can't give you my whole life there, Jesus. Or I'm a little busy right now cultivating my own kingdom. I don't have time for your kingdom right now. Let me finish that or I'll get around to that. Maybe when I'm older and I live the life I really want to live, I'll eventually give my life to Jesus. Now what gives me a chill about this story is that I find it easy to actually identify with these people who ignore the invitation or make excuses. They're so caught up 
in the daily life of their affairs. They just have no time for God. Their real problem, though, I want to just say to you, be very clear, it's not that their calendars are occupied. All of us have calendars that are occupied. It's that their hearts are divided, even to the point that they will not tear themselves away from their everyday lives in order to make time for an incredible invitation, the banquet of a king. The demands of business, the cares of home, the concerns of family, the lure of power, the lure of entertainment, these are all things that come at us every single day. And it's so easy time and time again to say, well, Lord, let me take a rain check with you. I have other things right now on my plate. And so the warning we have to hear if we're sitting in chair one is while there is nothing inherently evil about being busy, about all of our appointments, about TV, about smartphones, about running our kids from sport event to sport event, about working out, keeping in shape, making plans, making deals, all the stuff that occupies our life, we must heed the warning that we could miss out on the thing that matters most. We could fill our calendars so much, we miss out on having a feast with the king who has invited us to his table. And so I wonder, is there hope for people who find themselves in chair one? I think about the guy who actually wrote this parable that we just read, Matthew. We talked about his story a little bit, but here was a busy guy, trust me. He was a tax collector. He had lots to do. He had lots of money. He had lots of power. He'd fit very well in our culture today. He was living the American dream, even before America existed. And yet one day he had an encounter with Jesus who invited him into a relationship. And he didn't ignore it. He didn't make excuses. The Bible simply says he got up, left everything, and followed him. It was that drastic. How could he do that? Because he knew nothing could be better than a relationship with Jesus, both now and forever. And I got to tell you, he never regretted it. He never regretted it. How about you? Have you been ignoring the invitation? Are you making excuses about it? Jesus says to those in chair one, come and follow me. I promise you won't regret it. As you recall, that second chair there represents those who are opposed to the invitation of Jesus. There are still plenty of people out there today. In fact, I wonder if even there are some in this room right now, you're here because your mom and dad are making you be here. You think this whole thing is a fraud. You think it's a joke. Kind of like the Pharisees, you wish this whole thing would just go away. And so I wonder, what does God think of those who oppose him? I think about one of those Pharisees who actually did oppose him. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. And if you've ever read the Passion story, if you were here Friday night, interestingly enough, it was this Pharisee who asked Pilate for Jesus' body. He took Jesus' body down from the cross and he placed him in his own tomb. Something had changed in the heart of this man who at one time most likely opposed Jesus' message. Can that happen still today? I think of an author in England by the name of A.N. Wilson who used to write scathing anti-Christian books. And he had an encounter with the living Christ. And now today he writes books defending the Christian faith. Incredible. God's grace is extended 
to all people, even those who might oppose him now. Nobody is outside of the grace of God. I'm going to skip chair three here for a moment, and let's talk a little bit about chair four first. Let me just sum up again what we learned about it. This is people who feel like they deserve an invitation to the banquet based on their own righteousness, based on their own good deeds, their own good works. And I got to tell you, sometimes I think the church is full of people who believe this false idea. Remember the example I gave of Saul earlier, friends? He was as good as it gets. And yet, I want you to see what he wrote immediately after the verses we had just read about all his good deeds. He sat in chair four, and here is what he wrote. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider my self-righteousness garbage, all my good works, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of of faith. He understood that his own righteousness was nothing. It was not enough to stand before Jesus Christ at his banqueting table. Is there hope for people who sit in chair four today? I sure hope so, because I got to tell you, that's where I sat at one time, trying very hard to be good to do the right things, to prove myself to God, to try to earn my place at the table until one day, like God did for Saul, he revealed to me, that's all filthy rags. It's not enough. It's not enough in the light of a holy God. What you simply must do is receive the gift I'm giving you by faith, and then I will make you righteous. I will clothe you in righteousness. Friends, that's really what the gospel is all about. You know, Saul became the Apostle Paul. Because he understood that in an encounter with Jesus, all his good works fell short. But then he would go on and give his life for the fact that Christ wants us to sit at the table and to have his righteousness. The gospel is the good news that we cannot and do not earn our invitation at the table. Thank goodness. It's just a gift that he has given to you, and you simply receive it by faith. In fact, I want you to understand what the gospel is all about. It's just like this parable says. It is about Jesus taking your filthy rags and your self-righteousness and your sin, and you know what he's done? He's exchanged them for his robe of righteousness so that now we can all enter in the same way. So I'll ask, have you received your robe of righteousness? You don't earn it. You simply receive it by faith. Finally, we have that third chair there, and I think you get the point. All those other chairs must lead to that third chair if we want to join Jesus at his banquet table. Remember, that chair represents people who receive the invitation for what it is. It's simply a gracious gift from an incredible king. And so listen, one day when Jesus does return, he's going to ask every single one of us, what right do you have to come to my wedding banquet? Chair four won't be the answer. You will stand before Jesus and we will say, on my own, I have no right at all. And yet, because of your invitation, because of the cross of Christ and the resurrection from the dead, 
Because I have placed my faith in you, I come based on the invitation you've given me. To that, Jesus will say, welcome, friend. Come and share in your king's joy. The central message of Easter is simple. Please don't miss it. God has made it possible for us to be with him. It doesn't get it more difficult than that. You don't earn it. Don't ignore it. Don't oppose it. God has made it possible for you to be with him now and forever. That's his desire. And he went to the greatest expense imaginable. He gave his own son so that you could have that. You just receive it as a gift. So as we close this morning, here's my question. If you're on your notes, will I receive God's invitation to come to his table? Will I receive God's invitation to come to his table? What's his invitation I think he's still sending invitations out in the world today. And in the very last book of the Bible, we read this invitation. Can we read it out loud together? The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes to take the free gift of the water of life. If you'd like to respond to that invitation today, please know whatever chair you're sitting in, he's still inviting you. So if you'd like to receive that in faith, please bow your head with me right now and pray these words. Dear God, I know that I am a sinner and that there is nothing that I can do to save myself. I confess that I have ignored you, opposed you, or felt like I deserved my place with you. Today I admit my complete helplessness to forgive my own sin and take a seat at your table. But at this moment today, I trust Christ alone as the one who bore my sin and gave me his righteousness when he died on that cross. I believe he did all that will ever be necessary for me to stand in your holy presence. I thank you that Christ was raised from the dead as a guarantee of my own resurrection. And as best as I can, I now transfer my trust to him and receive the invitation to your table now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church, please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook.